This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey guys, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica. Today, my guest is Annie Grace. She's the author of This Naked Mind and The Alcohol Experiment, two books that encourage you to reevaluate your relationship with alcohol and counter some very prevalent and harmful cultural narratives out there about alcohol. She's created a massive community of people who either want to quit drinking or develop a healthier relationship with alcohol, including me. I found Annie and her work after feeling like I was using alcohol in an unhealthy way in my life relying on it too often for stress relief or me time. It was really making me feel pretty gross and I wanted to change. Annie's book was so empowering for me that I wanted to interview her about how and why she created both her book and her program. I think there are a lot of people out there who may want to change but don't know where to start. Let me tell you guys, this is the place to start. I'm so grateful that I found Annie and I've been able to shift my perspective on alcohol as a whole in society and in my own life. She's got so much great insight to hear today, so listen up and learn something. All right, Annie, thank you so much for uh, taking a few minutes to chat with me today on the podcast. Yeah, glad to be here. Well, I listen to your podcast religiously, so it's kind of surreal that you're, I'm actually speaking to you in real life. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I want to give people a little background on you. Uh, You have created this pretty large and powerful community, The Alcohol Experiment, and it all derived out of your decision several years ago to stop drinking. And you wrote about that and kind of your passion surrounding that issue in your book, The Alcohol Experiment, and then also This Naked Mind. And basically what it is, is you you turned it into this place where people who are sober curious, and that's kind of a term I want to talk about in a little bit, um, could go for support. And um, before we get into all that, I would love to hear just kind of the short version of what's your drinking story? What made you want to quit drinking in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So in in a brief nutshell, um, I didn't drink a lot through college, very rarely. When my husband and I got married, I was 26 years old and I was very intentional, like, okay, just a few sips of champagne. I really want to enjoy this and not be drunk for it. Like I want to remember it. I'd been to quite a few weddings where the bride didn't even remember the evening. And so Mm -hmm. I I just was really kind of counter to that. I, I had a high awareness of what I didn't want. Um, but I didn't really have a lot of awareness that alcohol was necessarily addictive or bad or anything else. And so we moved to New York city and I was literally pulled aside by somebody in the office. Um, one of my superiors. And he said, you know, why don't you ever come to happy hour? And I was like, oh, well, I don't drink. And he's like, yeah, it's not about that, Annie. It's really about networking. It's like the golf course for business. It's where the deals are done. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know. So then I started showing up. I had a a method, a glass of wine, a glass of water, make sure I didn't get too drunk. And I mean, fast forward a decade and drinking at a few happy hours was drinking every single night. And I remember having two small kids. Um, one of them come, you know, I said, come sit in my lap. He was four years old. And he's like, no, mom, I don't want to. Your teeth are purple and you smell funny. And it was just kind of like one of those moments where there was a, there was a lot of those moments. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was never anything big. It was never anything, you know, I mean, I remember I stopped drinking and my mother-in-law was like, wait, what? I never even saw you drunk. And, and I think that was kind of my story was that there was no massive, Thing. It was this lot of little moments where I was like, I'm not living congruent with who I, I think I'm supposed to be here in this world. But then when I, I tried to stop, it, it wasn't initially as easy as I'd hoped. And that was a big eye opener. Yeah. And so the community that you've created, uh, I am a part of that Facebook group and I read your book. And it's really interesting because you have people in the group that are like you and sort of like me who, you know, we're not the kind of people who, you know, you think of as your traditional, you know, wouldn't even call yourself an alcoholic. It's just you kind of felt uncomfortable with where you were. And you were maybe wondering, like, what would it be like if I just kind of gave this up? And then that and it also ranges all the way up to people who really 
are um, maybe drinking in the morning before work. You've got this wide range of people that are in the group and that are reading your books. So what made you go from, you know, this moment where you decided to quit to I'm going to write a book about this and then, you know, building on that, I'm going to start a community about this. And then it's really, it's really blossomed into this huge network where you're doing so much. How did you get from one place to the other? Yeah. So the book was really accidental. Um, like I mentioned earlier, it wasn't just easy for me to just say, okay, I'm just going to drink less. That was my intention. I'm just going to drink less. Perfect. Easy peasy. No problem. And I didn't find it easy. And so I started setting all these rules. I would, you know, not drink until Friday or I wouldn't drink until 5 PM or I'd only drink wine and I could keep the rules, but I'd always leave myself feeling deprived and grumpy on the days that I was, you know, taking off drinking and stuff. And so I was like, this is weird. And I just had this one kind of core question and it was, why is this different than it used to be? Why do I remember many years of my adult life without alcohol where I didn't need it to relax or have a good time? What changed? And so I started doing all this research and really found out this kind of, you know, amazing information about alcohol that we just don't talk about. <laughs> that yeah. Society is kind of brushed under the rug. And I was like, whoa, what? Wait, what? And so it was this huge experience for me of like, you know, awakening to the fact that alcohol is extremely addictive. Uh, who knew? And that yeah. if you drink it over time, you're going to become addicted. Wait, what? And then so I, um, I really through that, I also developed this, this very clear knowledge that it wasn't just physical. Uh, yeah, there's physical aspects, but for me, it was much more emotional and psychological. I had some really deep rooted beliefs that alcohol was key to relaxing, key to having a good time. And so when I not drink for a night or two, I would feel deprived. And I said, huh, okay, consciously, I really want to drink less here, but subconsciously I have all these beliefs that are keeping me stuck. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, what if I could, what if I could bridge that gap? And so I went on this kind of research bender, um, pardon the pun, and got <laughs> so much information. And I ended up stopping drinking with that information so peacefully, so happily. It was amazing. And I thought, oh my gosh, other people need to know this. I was still the global head of marketing for this large multinational company, had no intention of leaving the company, quitting my job, just knowing that I had really found freedom here. So I took that um, PDF of all this research, I, I knit it together in a very messy document, and I just put it up on a web page for free download. Didn't even ask for email addresses. Just like, here it is, world. Um, <laughs> you need this. And and uh, and I got twenty thousand downloads in two weeks. Wow. And it was crazy. I started getting letters from all over the world, people saying, oh my gosh, this is what I needed. I've been trying. This helped me too. I can't believe this, all this stuff. And so I was like, okay, well, what what would it look like to self-publish this? What would it look like to have this kind of pet project on the side and just publish this book, self-publish it? And um, that's how This Naked Mind was really born. I self-published it. And again, word of mouth, it just kind of turned, it had a life of its own. It went crazy. Um, about a year and a half after I self-published, I was approached by um, different publishers ended up going to auction with the top six publishers in the world, ended up signing a deal with Penguin Random House. And uh, that was great. That was amazing. Part of that deal was actually for my second book, The Alcohol Experiment. And how that came around was really cool because it, what had happened was I got this review on This Naked Mind on Amazon and it was a five-star review and it was from this guy and he said, <laughs> I read this for my brother because he has a problem and now I don't even like beer anymore and probably will never drink again. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Five stars. And I was like, wow, like people want this information that don't know they want this information. That's interesting, but people aren't going to necessarily go search, you know, how to stop drinking. So what about that? And then the same week I got an email from a woman and she said, thank you so much. I've been trying to do the whole 30 every year during January. I haven't been able to do it. Now this year I was really successful because it was the alcohol that was keeping me stuck. And I read your book and I was able to kick the alcohol and I was successful. So I was like, wow, we are obsessed with challenges. And what mm -hmm. if we created the, this challenge, but I didn't want to call it a challenge because challenge is hard. And I was like, no, it just needs to be a curiosity based experiment. And so that was really how the alcohol experiment came about. And it was actually a full blown, um, website before it was a book. So I really, I did videos for every single day. I chose a topic. I had an initial group of a few thousand people going through it with me. Um, and then that morphed into the book. And now there are over 50,000 people who have gone through the alcohol experiment online. 
And so when you first published that PDF online, you said you got 20,000 downloads. How did you first get it out there? Did you have a website or did you make a website? And how did you get people to even know that it was there? That was the funniest thing. No, I didn't have a website. I had literally figured out how to make one web page where I could host a PDF. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, well, that's, out. hey, that's all you need, like a landing page. Right. But there was no opt-in. So I wasn't getting email addresses even. And it was really funny because somebody emailed me. There was my email. My email address was on the PDF. So people uh-huh. could write me back. And he emailed me and he's like, you need to get email addresses for this. Yes. And I was like, well, why? And he's like, well, what if you, what if you want to tell them something later? What if you actually make this a book? Like you need to start building a list. And I was like, oh, a list. I never digital marketing 101. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was, I was in branding. I was not in, you know, digital marketing at all. It was, it's really right. been an evolution for me. And so, um, yeah. So then I went and I actually started my little journey with a um, Rainmaker, which is a pretty plug and play, easy to use software. And that was pretty good. It got me pretty far. Um, but then I realized I wanted a bit more customization than that. So then I moved over to WordPress and I had a guy who works for me still. He used to work for me at my old job. And, um, and he started, he came over, his wife really changed her relationship with alcohol with this naked mind. So he came over and he started working for me, developing actually a WordPress site. So that was great. Um, and then the evolution has gone from there. And now we do, you know, stuff in ClickFunnels and WordPress and um, uh, what else we also use. There's another tool, but it's kind of, yeah, just really. Oh, then we also have a custom developed tool. So the alcohol experiment itself is a custom developed tool that I got developed from some developers in Vietnam. And that's the online sort of version where mm-hmm. you can go through, choose your start date and and pick your days. Well, I, I've noticed some of that um, really kind of elaborate um, click funnel stuff that you have going on. I, do, I work in digital marketing myself in my, uh, my real job <laughs> outside of this podcast. And uh, so I've been pretty impressed with all the stuff that you do because you've got it in podcast form. You've got videos. You've got, um, you know, lots of emails, which I, man, you, I, I like, that's a lot of copy that you're putting out every week. Uh, so I can imagine that's kind of, quite a big task in and of itself to come up with those ideas. Do you have like an editorial calendar that you kind of go by to set up all that copy and all of those emails? Absolutely. So, and it's, it's really great how it's kind of transpired. So at first, obviously it was all me. Um, and then you start to, and I've always had this vision that like people are going to come, like people are going to want to be part of this. So I actually did a podcast with a guest. His name is Scott. And at the end of the podcast, he's like, you know, I'd love to work for you someday. And he was a sales engineer. And a year later, we worked it out. And, you know, he came over to this Naked Mind full time. Um, And and stuff like that has just kind of continued to happen, like people falling into place, Mm -hmm. which has been really incredible. So every month we get on, we sit down and say, okay, what what are the topics for this month? What are we going to talk about in the newsletter? What are we going to talk about socially? What are we going to talk about um, just in general? And then we we have a whole brainstorming session. Usually it has to do with, you know, what's going on in the world or the time of year. Uh, You know, this month we're really talking about transitions because school's getting out, people are graduating, people are going from, you know, high school to college, all that sort of stuff. It's a big transition month. So we're talking, we're talking about that. And then um, it is also freed up my time so that what I spend my time doing now, instead of doing all the stuff I was doing before, like trying to figure out the internet or click funnels or all that stuff is I literally just spend my time like writing and doing interviews, podcasts, media, stuff like that. And then writing, you know, I'm, I'm onto my next book that I'm kind of working on now. So it's, but it, it, it sounds great now. And I can look back and be like, wow, that's amazing. It all sounds so good, but I can tell you what, like it is, it is just this series of pushing forward through trial and error and not really knowing what's going to be next. The journey um, I've described it like, this sounds so funny, but like uh, walking around in the dark without, with blindfolded, you know, with people poking you with sticks. Mm-hmm. Like, well, it's, it's entrepreneurship, right? <laughs> right. Well, uh, so at what point did you, because you said you were in like a pretty high powered position, you're traveling the world, all of these things. So what point were you like, man, this is really taking off. I could do this for a living. Yeah. So, um, it was pretty quick after this naked mind was, uh, was, uh, 
published. And it was not actually that it was, this was taking off. I could do this for a living. It was more that the company I worked for is headquartered in London. And for two years I'd been commuting back and forth. So we'd spend some time living there and some time living here. And, uh, two years after that, they finally kind of put their foot down and said, no, we need you here full time. Mm. And, uh, my husband and I had lived in New York city. We love London, but we had two little kids. We just put them in kindergarten. Um, so we weren't as flexible as we, and I was like, you know what, now is the time. Like I have this book, if I'm going to really go in and dive into this, which it was filling my soul in a way that, you know, corporate marketing never had. And I said, now's the time. And my husband was super supportive. Um, so I said, okay, well, I think I'm going to part ways. So it was way fat. It was way sooner than I, I would have had it be if I mm-hmm. would have been choosing, but it also was like, do or die, which yeah, you know, gave you the space to put, yeah, to put the time in that you needed. Like I totally, I totally get that you're kind of forced to do it, but in a way it ended up being good for you. Um, so I, I want to talk about the space that you're in. So you mentioned earlier, you said the term, um, changed their relationship with alcohol. And I think that's so key to what you're doing because, so many people like me looking for something that I didn't even know existed. I'm Googling around, like, you know, r- recognizing that um, a place for me to, AA would not be a place for me to go. And and honestly, I, I didn't want to even, I didn't want to quit drinking. I just wanted to have kind of a healthier relationship with alcohol um, because for me it had become, and I, you know, you've heard this a million times through a lot of the people in your program, it just had become a crutch in my life. I was using it to quote de-stress. Um, I was using it, um, you know, as a reward at the end of the day and it wasn't all that much. Uh, but it was got, had gotten to a place for me where I felt this is not the way that I want to live. Um, and again, like it was the kind of thing where it's not affecting anyone. It's not affecting my parenting or my marriage or my job. Um, the only thing it's affecting is me kind of like mentally feeling weak and not wanting to rely on, um, a crutch like that. And so I found your program, which I was amazed that it was, you know, your 30 day experiment. That's actually, you have that for free. Um, um, which I was really surprised, but I thought it was really great because I think, you know, that initial entry price might dissuade someone from trying it. Um, and so is that why you made the, the initial entry program free? Yeah. It's so funny because for me, this has always been, I've been learning how to make this a business and it's always just been, I mean, it's the same thing with the PDF. It was like, okay, just, and then as soon as I got the book published on Kindle and everything, I just had the price at zero. Like I was just like, yep, no, this is, people just need this information. <laughs> You're like, I just want to help people. <laughs> and then my husband, who is like now our CFO was like, uh, Annie, you're not going to be able to do this long if you don't <laughs> you <laughs> charge the money. <laughs> right. So, um, but but having the alcohol experiment, it originated because I just wanted to test the concept. I just wanted to make it work. It was a beta test. And, um, but then once it was free, I was like, this feels right in my heart. Like this mm-hmm. feels really, really good. And then in order to support it right at the end of the alcohol experiment, people are allowed to, um, retain access to the site and all their journals and everything that they've accumulated for, you know, just a contribution. And so people like as much as a dollar or $5 or whatever the case is. And that's what funds that site, which is amazing. So it's, it's completely peer funded, uh, which means that I, it can always be free, which is like so great. And it, it's beautiful. And I love it so much. Um, but that's, that's exactly, I was like, I'm just going to see, you know, if people want to do this with me and they absolutely do people get the value out of it. And then at the end, you know, give five bucks or 30 bucks or whatever the cases. And that pays for all the incredibly high server costs now that we have 50,000 people in there. But, um, it's really great. It's really cool. Yeah. And, um, and the thing about, you know, someone's relationship with alcohol, uh, is that this is not something that usually you're going to be able to, Oh, 30 days, I'm done. Simple, easy. You know, it's like, it can be an ongoing process for people that are trying to give up something or, you know, really fundamentally change a relationship with an addictive substance that some of people have had for, you know, several decades. And so that being said, like you have all of these resources that really people know that they want to be able to come back to. And then on top of that, you've also created, um, programs beyond that. So you have like a live conference, you have, um, I think you have something like a live coaching or a live 30 day experiment coming up. 
Yeah, so we it's it just started on May 1st, so we run it a few times a year. I want to get to the point where we do it live um, every month, mm-hmm. but that's that's really fun and really cool because then, you know, you can still interact with people who are starting on your start date and stuff on the free site, which is cool because it's still a community and you can still chat. But on the live site, we actually have coaches in there, certified naked mind coaches who go on live every day and do Q&A with people's specific calls. And then it's in a Facebook group. So it's like this incredible community. So um, yeah, so we do that as well. The live one is $47 for the coaches uh, to pay for the coaches and stuff like that. But it's, it's absolutely great. And then after that, I have something called the 100 Days of Lasting Change where people can continue on getting an email and a video from me every single day for 100 days and really embed the change into their life. And then, as you say, there's people just, you know, that's the thing is everybody's relationship with alcohol is really, truly so different. I mean, some people just want to cut back. Some people just want to be more mindful. Some people are in a space where they're like, look, I've been trying to quit for decades and nothing has worked and now I'm going to try this way. And so they actually want something more intense. So I have coaches um, again, and we run a three month, very intense kind of face to face on Zoom every week uh, coaching program, which is is very cool. And then I actually have a year long program, too, which is one on one coaching for a year. And so all those different things are available and they're all really behind the scenes because, you know, if you if you get into the alcohol experiment, you're like a lot of people, it's kind of one and done. You know, they yeah. do the alcohol experiment. They're like, yes, that's it. And that's all they need. And that's beautiful. Um, but yeah, other people need need more. And I think but it is really defining it for you and realizing that there's no wrong answers like your path is your path. And um, what your goal should not be, uh, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, but for me, my goal was to make alcohol small and irrelevant and to find a place of freedom. Mm -hmm. And if that meant occasional drinking, that's fine. If that meant abstinence, I was okay with that too. It just, that was my goal. It wasn't my goal to never have a drink again. It is still not my goal to never have a drink again, because that makes me feel really hemmed in, uncomfortable. The brain rebels against rules. I like to work with the brain instead of against it. Um, And so that's really important. It's an important distinction. It's a distinction that I think a lot of people who are firmly in the abstinence camp struggle with. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, they they feel that, well, if I have to be abstinent, so does everybody or, you know, maybe I'm putting words in their mouth. But there is a lot of pushback. But um, I think we're all adults. Yes. <laughs> we're adults because we're drinking. And, you know, we can make our own choices and decisions when we have the right information. And when we take a break from it, like the alcohol experiment, then we can make those choices and decisions without the influence of the chemical, right. uh, which is so much bigger. I mean, you can make such a better choice about like the, you know, bowl of ice cream in front of you when you haven't had sugar in 30 days yeah, than when you're in absolutely. like this major sugar withdrawal, right? So it's the same, same mechanism. Well, I, I just, I love the community and then I loved your book because I think one thing I was so scared of before I found it was I was afraid to to voice my thoughts about being uncomfortable with my relationship with alcohol because I thought people were immediately going to label me an alcoholic or something or say I'm an unfit mother. And um, I realized after joining your community that that is not true and that there are a ton of people out there just like me who, you know, aren't downing bottles of vodka but maybe are drinking two glasses of wine a few times a week and they're not comfortable with that. And there are plenty of people who are drinking a couple glasses of wine a night and are comfortable with that. And if they are, I guess that's fine for them, but I wasn't comfortable with that. And so it was just so freeing and refreshing for me to like come into this and be like, Oh my gosh, like I'm totally not alone. Like there are so many people that are quote, like normal people like me that are, um, just want to change their relationship with alcohol. And so having that 30 days for me was so pivotal because it was hard. I would, I will admit it was hard for me to go 30 days without drinking. Um, but I was committed to it cause I was like, it's 30 days. Like if yeah. you drink this beer at dinner, like you're not going to hit the 30 days. And then what's the point in all of this? And so it really helped me to, um, to, like you said, kind of like just kind of restart, reevaluate, and um, hit re- reset on that. Now, I didn't stop drinking. I, I do still drink on occasion, but it is cut down like I don't even like by a 
by 10 times cut down. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's really changed for changed me for the better and just my whole relationship with it. So um, I would just say for anyone listening, um, you're not alone if you're feeling sober curious, which I did want to cover that term. What is sober curious, Annie? Can you tell us what that means and, and why that's kind of a the pivotal way to look at this or or, or explain to people who are curious about what you're talking about? So in my opinion, I love curiosity mm-hmm. um, for a lot of reasons, because when you're curious, you have a really hard time feeling other emotions, right? Like guilt kind of goes out the window. Shame kind of goes out the window. When you're curious, you're not expecting a certain outcome. And so when you go into sobriety with a, oh God, I, I got to get sober because this is happening in my life. And it's this sentence you automatically bring an energy to it of uh, something's going to be taken away from me. Life isn't going to be as good. I'm going to be missing out. And it's, it's a really, um, it's not, it's not an energy that I think is ideal for really venturing into a journey about something that can be so incredibly positive. And when you go into sobriety curious, then all of a sudden you're like, huh, what might this have for me? I'm leaving all options open. I'm leaving the option open that Alcohol might be the best thing on the planet, and I do want to drink a bottle a night. Mm-hmm. That option is open to me. I'm leaving the option open that I might discover that I never want to, you know, ever even taste it again. That option is open to me, or the option is open to me that I might just cut back, and that's incredible, and I'm going to own that choice. And you you don't have any predetermined what's going to happen, and so that takes off all the pressure. And when you go into any situation with curiosity, it's so rare that we go into any situation with true curiosity. What normally happens, I remember so distinctly, it would be my turn to be the designated driver. And I would go into that evening with a, well, this is going to kind of (laughs) suck. Yep. (laughs) And then it did suck because I had told myself it was going to suck. And it, it was really kind of a miserable experience, which just confirmed that, oh, alcohol was the only thing that was making this fun. Right. But now if I would apply curiosity and you say, okay, I'm the designated driver. I'm going to see, I'm going to just get curious. This is an experiment. This is a data point. I'm going to see what it's like to be in a situation without drinking tonight guess what? You are allowing the opportunity to completely surprise yourself. And I think that's really at the crux of what this movement is, is not to have have tos, you know, get rid of that and just to have what ifs. And I think that's really what Sober Curious is. Well, there's so many mental shifts that people don't realize that they can actually take that can, can turn the whole thing upside down. For example, one of the most helpful things to me that I've learned from you is, is to say, what is it that I'm really looking for right now? And one of those things, uh, you know, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so uh, and I work full-time, so I, I, I know you probably know my life well. And um, <laughs> yeah. so at the end of the day, it is stressful. Like that, uh, what do they call it? The, the witching hour? That's rough. Yes. <laughs> the witching hour is a rough time. And so I think to myself, yes, I want wine right now, but what I really want is to be comfortable and sit down and relax. And I know that that's coming for me once my kids are in bed. And, and and just even recognizing that that's actually what I'm looking for, not wine, has has really helped me because I then I start to realize, actually, I don't want wine. Actually, I don't want to drink because I remember how quickly that feeling goes from, oh, sure, a momentary, like, good feeling. But then, you know, an hour later, I feel like groggy and like it actually makes me feel depressed and um, to just look at, you know, zoom out and look at this situation from a totally different perspective. It's, it's really changed uh, things for me in the evenings. So I think those mental shifts make a big difference. Now, speaking of being a mom, one of the things you focus on in the group is this um, mommy drinking culture that is so prevalent. We see the memes, we see the t-shirts and all of that stuff. Um, I would love if you could just say a few words about your thoughts on that um, mentality that goes around and is so prevalent and why we need to push back on that. I think the most important thing to understand about the mommy drinking culture is that I see, I see this happening and it kind of saddens me a little bit because I feel like we have this, you know, moms who have kind of awakened from it and then we're like, oh my gosh, push back, villainize it. Um, and I think what we need to understand is that as moms, we are doing exactly what you just said. We are doing the best we can with all the available tools we have. Mm-hmm. And so if we've been told our whole life that alcohol relaxes us and reduces stress, and we're being told by our best girlfriends who we depend on for absolutely everything that, hey, just 
just have a glass of wine. This is going to help who are, by the way, telling us that because that's their experience and that's what they've been being told. Um, we just don't have the tools. We don't, we don't know that there's any other option. And so we're going into this. I think what we have to understand is that in the mommy drinking culture, there's no bad intentions. Right. Of course. We're not intending to be drunk on play dates and be in a blackout as we get our kids home. We're not intending to, um, you know, be in the bad moms culture like that movie. And so I think we just need to understand that really have forgiveness for ourselves. If we find ourselves in a place where we're like, wow, motherhood, which for me too, is exactly my story. Drinking took a really intense turn after the birth of my first son. And then even more intense after the birth of my second son, because you've just gone through this nine months of abstinence. You've proved to yourself, you don't have a problem. You're suddenly smack dab in the most stressful time of your life. And guess what? Everybody says that, yeah, well, the answer is wine. And so when that happens, you you just are functioning with the tools you have. So I think that's really important to kind of say out there because I I we don't want to perpetuate shame around this is, is yeah. really what is so important. Mm-hmm. Equally though, I think moms just need to be empowered and really understand that, you know, a lot of those memes that come up, a lot of the things that we put in our kitchen, like, you know, it's not drinking alone if the kids are home or mm-hmm. uh, no good story ever started with a salad. That's why there's wine or whatever these things are. Like we have to understand that those things didn't originate with, you know, f- witty moms. They originated with the alcohol culture who exactly. wants to sell yeah. more alcohol. We have to understand that the the amount of dollars that have gone into marketing alcohol to women in the last few decades is insane. It is a higher increase than any other amount of alcohol spend and it's working. And actually women were identified as an underserved quote market mm-hmm. by the agencies that, um, you know, really band together for alcohol advertising. And so there's been this very intentional shift to target women in the media with brands. You know, mommy's timeout is a brand of wine, for example, yeah. mommy is another brand of wine. And these things have been very intentional by people who are saying, oh, wait, we're not making enough money from women and from specifically moms. So let's pour gasoline on this fire. Let's invest as much money as possible into this because women and moms have historically drank less than men and dads. And so we've been identified as this underserved market. And once you start to see that, not only does it relieve the shame, but it's like, kind of pisses you off. And you're like, wait a second. Like, okay, we all think we're telling each other that this is really important. And I think the other thing that I would say is that, you know, I saw a meme recently on Facebook and it's like, mom's mommy's happy meal, a bottle of wine and a Xanax. Oh my gosh. We think it's like funny and cute and, and we're, you know, overcoming our cognitive dissonance around drinking, but what we're really saying to ourselves as women when we say I need a glass of wine to handle my kids is we're saying we're not strong enough without a glass of wine. And that's Mm -hmm. the subconscious message that we're getting. That's the subliminal message. When we tell our friends, oh, they just need a glass of wine to get through the situation with their husband, we're telling them they're not strong enough without it. And I think we just need to be really mindful and aware of giving ourselves as women a different message because the truth is is like we kick ass, like we're so strong. (laughs) always have been. And women can parent all day long without alcohol. We've done it for millennia, you know, and women can be married and balance everything at home and, and do more things than any human can imagine. And we have all that within us. And just really awakening to that, that, that this is, you know, getting over this, it's a very clear subconscious message that if you need this substance, you are telling yourself you're weak and you can't do it without it. Disempowerment disempowering. And, um, and it's funny because it's ironically, you know, there's this whole kind of feminist movement of, well, we can drink as much as our husbands. And that really happened in the fifties and stuff like, yeah, me too. You know, I'm going to drink as much as them. And it was almost like we're empowering ourselves, but really when you see it for what it is, you know, and now that all the industries have latched onto it and the alcohol advertising spend has latched onto it, you know, it is a disempowering message. And I think just recognizing that it is a disempowering message that you are strong enough without it and that there is, should be no guilt or shame here. I mean, literally I drank more than I care. Like, can I even imagine now during the time when my two boys were in their early years? Um, and it was because that's, what I thought the answer was. It was because I was simply trying to survive and do better and feel better and do right by them. And I literally thought it made me more present with my kids. I thought it relaxed me enough to be nicer to my kids. I had really 
deep-seated, ingrained false beliefs about it. And um, when that's the case, I was just doing the best I could with the tools I have, and now I know better. And that's great. We are always learning and knowing better. Yeah, I, I love your emphasis on getting rid of the guilt and shame because I think going back to my own story, um, I always felt like I was just weak. Like, I, like, oh, you've done it again, like moral failing over and over yep. again. And when I realized, when I started reading both your book and some other books, um, that, like you said, we're just trying to survive. And literally, chemically, our bodies are like telling us, because if you're, say, you're drinking wine every day, your body is saying, well, you need that again to get through this. You need that again to get through this. And you kind of train yourself. And then your body like starts to think that it needs that. And so when I recognized that and I was like, it's not because you're a weak person. Um, it's just because you've gotten into this habit and this pattern and your body thinks this, but all you have to do is um, kind of retrain your mind and retrain your body. And, and being gentle with myself and kind of realizing that there was no shame in this and I didn't need to feel guilty about it. I mean, that, that made a world of difference. And I think there's a lot of people out there who maybe don't understand that. And, and I think you're kind of uncovering that to people in the work that you're doing, which is why I think it's so extremely popular. Now, the other thing is, it's like, when did you, I mean, did you find anyone else that was doing kind of like sending this kind of same message? Because it's like, you've got Alcoholics Anonymous over here. And then you've got like sobriety people that have never drank over on the other side. So it's like, how did you recognize that there was like this missing piece for people in the middle? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting. I think there are people now like Jolene Park really talks about gray area drinking and she, she's done an amazing Ted talk on that. Um, but I think, yeah, you've got the sobriety recovery kind of sober forever situation. And I remember early days, like it was great. I mean, people like put their arms around me and like, oh, great, you're one of us. This is great. Let's go to these rallies and let's be, you know, in this recovery community and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, cool. Like, I'm, I'm so happy for the new friends and this is awesome. But I was also like, hmm, like, I don't know that I believe that everybody has to be abstinent, abstinent forever. Right. Yeah. I remember voicing that to some people. And I was even told by, by one, um, great, still a good friend, but like, she's like, wow, you saying that is like you telling me Santa does, doesn't exist. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, but I really, you know, I, I've seen it too many times where not everybody walks the same path. But really, I'd say, so it started it kind of, I, I try to pay attention to like how I'm feeling. And if I'm not feeling something that, like if there's something being triggered in me, I'm like, what is it? What is it? What is it? Right? And I think that's one amazing thing about not drinking is that inner voice, that intuition gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so I started to listen to that. And I remember going on and I saw this statistic from the Centers for, for Disease Control, the CDC, and it said that actually of excessive drinkers, only 10% are clinically and chemically addicted to alcohol and 90% are not. And yeah. I was like, wow, where's the answer for the 90%? And I just had this almost like a an image in my head of somebody trying to take a step into a conversation around alcohol, but the step was abstinence. And the step was so high that it was above their head and they couldn't even take that first step. Yeah. And I was people like, don't oh, even no. want to think about it at that point sometimes. And you, you give them a way away. in. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The step doesn't look like a step. It looks like a, a brick mountain. Wall. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I was like, no, we have to have a step that's like literally flat. <laughs> like it has <laughs> yes. to be like a, a lowest barrier to entry possible. Yeah. And that was really, um, really, I, I got really passionate about that about a year and a half ago. And yeah, I mean, I think it, I've split a little bit from some of those really intense kind of sobriety and recovery groups, not, not in a bad or a negative way at all, but just in a, well, okay, here, here I am in the middle, <laughs> you know, yeah. my little island doing my own thing. But, but I think that's great. And I think that, like I said, Jolene Park is a good friend of mine. She lives here in Denver and her TED talk on gray area drinking, I think really covers it as well. And I think there's just so many voices starting to have this, you know, realize this. It's, it's not something that I discuss, like I, I invented. It's just the truth that, um, people are starting to realize that actually there's a huge spectrum here and it's not black and white. 
Yeah, and we kind of touched on this a little bit, but you know, same thing with the mommy drinking culture. We see, you know, you always see people sharing the, uh, you know, latest report out: a, a glass of wine a day leads to a longer life, and all of these things. And I always kind of roll my eyes at that. But can you talk a little bit about um, where where are those studies coming from, and why are they so misleading? Yes. Um, oh my gosh, I love to talk about this so much. <laughs> I could talk your ear off. So. I'll give you one example, and then you let me know if you want another one. But um, <clears throat> the longer life example, since you brought it up, is just such a good one. So there was a study done. It's called the Houlihan study, and it was done, uh, a few, like I think it was years ago now. And basically what they did is they measured people from age 50 to age 70, and it was a group of less than 2,000 people that they measured for 20 years. And then they kept track of a bunch of different statistics about them. One of them was how much they drank, nothing, moderate drinkers or heavy drinkers, and then how how many of them died in that 20-year period. And the result of that study was that the heavy drinkers died first, um, the abstinent people died second, and the moderate people statistically died third. So it wasn't obviously every single person, but <laughs> yeah. as a whole, statistically, that's how it worked. And so that study was got, you know, people got a hold of that in, in mass media and started putting out um, headlines that, you know, moderate drinking makes you live longer. And obviously the alcohol industry got a hold of it and started yes. putting out those headlines. And, uh, the problem with that is the abstinent in the study, if you read the study itself, the Houlihan study, in the study it says the abstinent people were abstinent because often of medical problems where they couldn't drink alcohol, they were on heart medication or something else where they couldn't drink alcohol, mm -hmm. or prior abuse of alcohol. <laughs> yeah. So, it, like I mean, what else do you have to say? So like the, the abstinent people who had prior abused alcohol or who had medical problems, because it wasn't as if they were just <laughs> abstinent for life and it was just 20% right. of the study who had just magically decided to not drink in a society where 90% of people drink. It was that they actually were sick. And so of course they died faster than the moderate drinkers. So, um, and every study is like that. I mean, it, it is, and there's so many instances where I reached out to a group of um, scientists a year ago where a study had come out about dementia and about how wine helps with dementia. And I've got a great YouTube video about this. I won't go into it now because it's, it's in depth, but basically in that study. And they were so upset that their study, that little pieces of it had been taken out of context and used mm. and proliferated in the way it, it was because that was never their intention. I mean, the study was literally on dementia and alcohol was one little factor in it. And again, the instance of, you know, moderate drinking, like helping dementia, it was the same thing. There was the exact same caveats where um, it wasn't clean and it wasn't true. And uh, yeah, it really does upset the scientists when this stuff happens because they know yeah. Well, it's amazing how little things like that can just spiral out of control. I don't know how much you follow the opioid crisis, uh, the genesis of that, but I've done a lot of reading and writing on it. And uh, a lot of people may not know that the, the whole thing about um, opioids and, and how the doctors started prescribing them like crazy um, the pharmaceutical industry got a hold of, you know, a little report with like one sentence in it saying that these opioids were not addictive and they took that and spun it out of control and it went everywhere. And all of a sudden, um, you know, it became this epidemic um, where people didn't recognize how addictive these opioids are. And obviously we know what happened with that. Um, but it's really scary um, what can be done with, you know, research without responsibility, I guess. Um, and, uh, that just, that reminded me of that a little bit. Uh, yeah, it's research without responsibility and it's also research with intention to prove a certain oh, thing. Right. Exactly. It's like manipulate any data to prove whatever you want. It it's to like prove. political polling, the way they frame <laughs> the question or it's like whoever, you know, who's ever putting it out, you know, changes it just a little bit to meet exactly what they're looking for. And it's like, why it's why it's like, you can't trust anything you read sometimes I feel like. And we just have to read below the headlines. You know, exactly, I mean, I think the yeah. two things that I would, I would give as tips if people want to be really informed 
is um, read below the headlines. The headlines about alcohol and health, alcohol and heart health, alcohol and longevity, alcohol and being better than a half an hour in the gym. All of those headlines are going to get shared prolifically just because of the science of sharing and why people share stuff. They do it to confirm what they're already doing in their life to make themselves feel better about it, um, to seem cool in front of their friends, et cetera. You know, the studies about the harms of alcohol are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands to one. Mm -hmm. And those aren't going to get shared. And I would say read below the headline, but then also click on or look for the references and find the actual study. You can skip through all the, you know, uh, cosine tangent sort of gobbledygook and <laughs> skip to the bottom to the conclusions right. and read those and decide if that actually is saying the same thing that the headline said, because 99% of the time it will not be. Mm -hmm. So looking at, I mean, I'm sure you've just, you've spoken to so many people who have had their lives changed by the work that you do. What are some of the most frequent things that you hear, hear people say about their life um, after they change their relationship with alcohol? I think uh, the most frequent thing I hear is, why didn't I do this before? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like, oh, why, why weren't you around, you know, five years ago? What, what? what happened? And, um, just really, but also I think a lot of gratitude that things are happening now. Um, I also, I think people really do still, and it will probably be this way for a long time, but society can be pretty intolerant of people not drinking. I mean, alcohol, I say it sometimes it's the only drug on earth you have to justify not taking. Seriously, and yeah. so having to justify your choice in this is very different than if you were to say, oh, I stopped smoking or I stopped, you know, eating carbs or, you know, whatever other health change you might make. You know, this one invites a lot of criticism. And I think people really, you know, need to navigate that and have a hard time navigating that. I would say that almost 100% of the time in my experience, the criticism comes from the people who are also struggling the most. Mm -hmm. And because you're literally shining a mirror um, or a flashlight into where they're already questioning things and it makes them feel uncomfortable. So uh, in general, everything everybody says to you about you is not about you, it's about them. But this is a very specific example of where that's absolutely true. Yeah. So what do you find most rewarding about what you do now? Oh, I think just talking to people. I mean, I do on my podcast, I have uh, stories. And I think that is probably one of the coolest thing is just to hear people's stories, to hear where they were, where they're going now. And uh, I'm, I've just launched this Naked Mind Institute. So it is a Wow. Coaching certification program. Cool. And we are getting ready to train um, over 40 coaches in Denver in July. And it is just the coolest, like to be able to empower people to go and do the same thing and spread this message further and really focusing on the curriculum and the training for that is hugely rewarding. You know, just seeing how I'm only one person. And also this isn't even my message. This is everybody's message. This is happening with or without me. Our society is waking up to this. Everything's changing. It's so beautiful. And to, um, just to be a part of that and like, to be able to then empower other people with the tools to really make a difference, I think is very re rewarding. Now, do you ever get any negative pushback from anybody? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I take it. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so much. What do you hear? So I'm curious. Um, yeah, there's a lot of negative pushback, I think, about the whole idea that it isn't black and white. That makes uh -huh. people very, very uncomfortable. Uh, there's a lot of negative pushback about the fact that um, it can be, you know, different for every person or that it can be done online instead of at in-person meetings. I think there's, I mean, every, everything that you could imagine I've heard, like there's, there's. So do you get it <laughs> more from the, uh, from the sober community, the criticism, or just from all sides of the aisle? <laughs> Mostly, I would say from the sober community, okay, Most, gotcha. because it's it's a change to how things have been done, and it makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I would say there there certainly is criticism from people who are really still stuck and trying to justify their own drinking, but that is. Um, you know, like, no, alcohol is not really bad for you. Or wait, who are you to say this? You don't know, you're not a scientist, you know, whatever the case is. And um, so there's, there's that. And, and that for me, like, on an emotional level does not really affect me as much because I have so much compassion because I, I can hear those words coming out of my mouth. 
yeah. <laughs> six yeah. or seven years ago, you mm-hmm. know, I'm like, oh yeah, that, that would have been me. I would have been like, who does she think she is? She's trying to make me feel bad about this or whatever. Right. Um, which obviously isn't my intention, but it's how it can come across. I think the stuff that does really bother me is I was really blindsided by the reaction uh, by the sober community. I think it's gotten less in the last five years. I will say that because I think that people have been more open to the fact there are lots of other ways to do this and have this conversation. Um, but I had no idea that there even was one way quote, because I, I hadn't gone to an AA meeting. I'd never been in a recovery community. I wasn't trying to even quote, get sober. You know, I don't even relate to that word. I was just really trying to like, drink less in my own life. Right, exactly. Researching it. And so I was on my own little journey that was so undiluted by all this. And I did expect, I was like, oh my gosh, the alcohol industry might get mad at me. Like that's (laughs) never happened. Um, I never thought that other sober people would get mad at me. Yeah, that's interesting. I've been, I kind of mentioned that I've done a little bit of work um, in in the addiction crisis space and in some of my writing. And there's a lot of talk about, um, this is a little different, but there's like the harm reduction community versus the sober community. And I'm just realizing now what, how head to head that goes. And so I'm, I'm imagining it's somewhat similar to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say I probably, you know, try to stay out of all those communities. Although I I don't, I think labels in general are are pretty intense and, and, um, you know, polarizing, but I did speak a few times at a harm reduction conference. And I have to say that, you know, that I see it like, you know, what I'm trying to offer people is, you know, if you're going to drive your car, wear a seatbelt, yes. <laughs> be aware. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, you know, as opposed to no, don't drive, just walk everywhere. Cause driving's dangerous. And I think that's really kind of the distinction. Well, I think your um, Facebook group, I think people really like that. I think they find it, uh, you know, just kind of a solace, a place to go, even though it's just online. How important do you think that having that community, I mean, even online, I think is is helpful. And then is there any, do you um, have ever have any sort of faith component that goes along with your message? Never any sort of faith component. I mean, I have my own faith, but that I leave completely out of this naked mind because I I really never want that to be a deterrent. I think it's really important um, that people can come to this from wherever they are and wherever they're at. Like, I I want humans to meet humans, you know, Mm -hmm. again, with the labels. Like, I wouldn't, we have so many judgments and labels when anybody says, I'm this or I'm that. And so that's that's very important to me that that's not not part of this naked mind at all whatsoever. but yeah, in terms of the communities, yeah, I think they're vital. In fact, we just this week launched um, something called the Exchange, where it's it's taking a, a Facebook community, but then I've got a group of 18 facilitators who are hosting Zoom calls, so like face-to-face video calls, all different times of day, uh, all different days of the week, and just inviting people to get on and, and connect online. I've been asked for years for like, are there Naked Mind meetups here and there? And they're starting to happen organically. Like I know there's some in Colorado, some in Evergreen, some in the UK. Um, but also I'm like, well, how can, I can't do that. Like I can't really facilitate that or make that happen. That just has to spring up. Yeah. But this I can make happen. I can, I can create a place where people can log on, and have a group of people to talk for an hour. We're calling them exchange hours where you just log on and you can just chat and just be with like-minded people and kind of get your bucket filled again. And is um, that so a, is that a paid awesome. for thing or is that a free yes. thing? Okay. Very cheap. So it's like less than a dollar a day. Um, but it is because it's, <laughs> I've got 18 facilitators. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta Absolutely. live. <laughs> you gotta pay people. It's, totally. It's paid. Um, um, but no, it's, it's great. It's very cool. And it's just kicking off. So we'll see how it evolves. Um, and it came from like everything I do comes from people saying, Hey, what about this? We need this. We want this. And so that's, that's exactly where this came from. Well, I love all the components to what you do. I definitely recognized, um, how kind of versatile it was and all the ways you're reaching people. Cause I know one thing that, uh, you know, that I know as a, as a digital marketer myself is just that, you know, different people, um, learn in different ways, whether that be through a podcast or a video or an email, like just having all of those components, I think is really helpful. Um, okay. Well, I just have a few last questions I like to ask at the end of the podcast, um, and I should have sent these to you before, so if you don't have them on the spot, don't worry about it. But I, I, I like to ask people if there is, um, is there anyone in your life that's like a role model or someone that you really look up to that's been an inspiration for you in, in life or in your career or in your journey? 
Oh, I feel like there's so many that I can't even like begin to count. I mean, I feel like both my dad and my mom, um, my dad specifically, he was spontaneously sober in his early twenties and, um, just alcohol just was not relevant to him anymore. And so he just lived that life, but he never, I would have never even known that he, he will call him, he will say like, he was such a heavy drinker. He will even use the word alcoholic. He never went to AA or anything, but he just decided it wasn't working for him and he just stopped on a dime. And he has always told me, um, you know, he, he raised us in this very interesting situation in this one room log cabin in the middle of the mountains, no running water, no electricity, completely off the grid. And he did it completely intentionally to kind of live this alternate lifestyle. And he's like, if you want money, you can have money. If you want to be this, you can be that. If you want to be whatever, you can be whatever. I choose this. I choose not to have money. I choose to live in this situation. I choose to be here, but you can do whatever you want to do. And so it was just that area of like complete openness that I, I feel like both of my parents really raised me with that, um, yeah, I really credit for me being able to question pretty much anything, <laughs> which is just That's awesome. cool. That's cool. I feel like we could have a whole other podcast about growing up in a log cabin and using an outhouse, which I heard you say <laughs> that in, the, in your About Me video on your website. Yeah. Um, now, if you could have dinner or drinks with someone famous, who would it be and why? Um, I know, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. I, I'm just going to say the first person that comes to my mind, which would be Bradley Cooper, because he has oh, such like a yeah. variety story. He's cool. I loved him in Alias. And then, you know, most recently, like his performance um, in A Star is Born and yeah. stuff. So I, I think that would be really fun. And um, what's that one he's in with Jennifer Lawrence? Um, playbook. Um, oh, yeah. What? I'm like blanking. Anyway, I love that movie. It's one of the few movies that I can watch like multiple times. It's so good. Yeah, he's one of the best. Um have you, I don't know if you're much of a reader, but do you have a book that you really love that you could recommend or maybe something that you've been reading lately? I am just, um, gosh, such, such a big reader. I have so, so, so many books, but I figured, (laughs) uh, one of my favorite books that really helped me with navigating life, finding really a lot of peace. And actually I would credit it from really helping me out of a lot of clinical depression is, um, Loving What Is by Byron Katie. Okay. And that's one of your favorites. Are you reading anything now? Um, I am rereading Ask and It Is Given, (laughs) which is kind of like controversial because it's by a group of non-conscious entities called Abraham Hicks. (laughs) Um, Oh, okay. I I feel like it's a book that... um, you know, I think with everything, my philosophy in general is I, I literally will read everything from the Bible to, uh, you know, the Tao Te Ching to the Bhagavad Gita, whatever it is, like there's wisdom in, in almost everything. And you just take what works for you and you leave what doesn't. And you have to make your own distinction on that. And this is one of those books that you're like, okay, this, this is an intense premise, but man, some of the, some of the principles in this book, I mean, one of the main themes is that like, this is as good as it's going to get. Like you have to be happy now and stop looking for something in the future because then all the stuff you want in the future actually can come to you. Mm. And, um, just this really important thing of like, this is it like now, right now and reinforcing that idea. And it, I think it's really good. So yeah, I'm rereading that right now. Yeah, that sounds really good. Like a lot of wisdom. Okay. And since this is a podcast and I love podcasts, do you have any favorite podcasts that you like to listen to? So I just started listening to The Life Coach School by Brooke Castillo. Uh, I was just listening to that yesterday. <laughs> oh, so good. Like, yeah. Every episode like blows my mind. I'm I like, think oh. someone recommended that to me in an interview like two weeks ago on this podcast. So <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Very popular. Okay, cool. Any others? Um, I really love The Robcast by Rob Bell. Oh, yep. That's a big one. That's a very popular one. Uh, There's just, there are so many, it's hard to squeeze them in. You have to just like, okay, I got to be disciplined about this. I can't do it all. (laughs) Yep. Yep. You got to pick and choose. It's really hard. All right, Annie. Well, I really appreciate you taking a whole hour out of your day to talk with me. It really means a lot. Um, I've just gotten so much out of your book and your community and all the stuff that you've done. And I'm just very inspired by everything. So thank you so much for helping me uh, change my relationship with alcohol. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Did you learn anything? I really love talking with Annie. I'm so grateful that she took the time to talk with me. She's pretty busy. She's got a lot going on. Her programs are just growing massively. I think the Facebook group I'm in with her 
the alcohol experiment is like 50,000 people or more, so it's a little crazy in there. Um, but honestly, I've learned so much from her and her work and just the science and the thinking and the mental energy and things that go behind uh, our relationship with alcohol and really how unhealthy it is in our society as a whole. Um, I'm, I've always been really interested in this whole pushing back against the mommy drinking culture. But I love what she said about not having guilt or shame. And I think that is so key to this whole conversation. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.